just a few more moments for the reading of God's Word. If you're not able to remain, that's okay, standing. Either way, take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 53. We want to read verses 4, 5, and 6 this morning. That should be on page 614 if you would like to use a Bible from the church. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. This is God's Word for us this morning. And here's what God says. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions, and He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to His own way. And the Lord laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. You may be seated. Father, oh, there's no word like your word. It is a treasure. It is a gift from you that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would disclose yourself, and not only yourself, but your ways and your plans, and and even in this passage, how it is that you're going to rescue a people like us. So, Father, may, may we learn from this passage, but may we marvel at what you're saying to us. May you change us, transform us as we spend the next few moments considering this passage. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're looking this summer as our summer scripture memory passage. We're looking at at these 15 verses. We started back in chapter 52, verse 13, and we're aiming for chapter 53, verse 12. Uh, And uh, these uh, 15 verses are really five stanzas of three verses apiece. And the structure of these stanzas, by way of review, just remind us that the first stanza, which is 52, 13 through 15, parallels or mirrors the fifth stanza, which is 53, 10 through 12. And the second stanza, which we looked at last week, which is 53, 1 through 3, parallels our mirrors uh, the fourth stanza, which is 53, 7 through 9. So that this middle stanza, the third stanza, this middle child, if you would, of the passage, is a standalone. It's all by itself. And that, that's not so that you and I would feel sorry for it, but that so you and I would know that, that uh, the way Isaiah penned this, uh, there, there are some central features that are stated that are unfolding for us 
of uh, utmost importance. In other words, he's, he's um, compiled, uh, there's none of it that is unimportant, but he's compiled these middle verses and maximized them. They have no parallel. They have no mirror. They, uh, they, they stand alone in emphasizing that which is utmost in this passage. They're the center of this passage. And I would suggest to you that, that what we are going to glean out of this passage that is a central component, feature of this passage, is the notion of substitution. Two things I want us to say about substitution. Substitution accomplished. We'll spend probably the most amount of our time together thinking about this first point of of how Christ accomplished substitution. And then the second point is substitution applied. We'll spend maybe a little bit less time. It's no less important. In fact, it's very practically vital for us to not only acknowledge how it is that substitution gets accomplished, but how does substitution get applied to people like you and I? It's my hope and desire that before we leave this morning, uh, that in your own heart and life, you have worked out the application of substitution in your soul. Well, and I'll just remind us that um, uh, it's me again. It's Mr. Broken Record talking to you again about substitution. So um, it's one of my assignments, I believe, from the Lord that uh, I am to take this notion of substitution and I am to beat it into the ground. (laughs) So that when we stand before the Lord and uh, we are figuring out how to gain access into the Lord's heaven, uh, that we understand that it's on the basis of this thing, this beautiful reality that, that... that I'm calling, that the scriptures identify as substitution. Now, as we consider this passage, we're really talking about what Christ has done. In this first point, talking about what Christ has accomplished, I just remind us, this is Isaiah describing what Christ will accomplish. This is penned some 700 years before Jesus ever shows up, and, and yet, and yet, And yet, this is not hard for God to do. God moved upon Isaiah's heart to record these prophecies that are going to accurately depict what will happen. And now from our perspective, what has already happened, that salvation has already been accomplished because the one who was sent to accomplish it has finished it. And yet what this passage alerts us to From Isaiah's perspective, what God will do in Christ, and yet from our perspective, what God has done in Christ, is that Christ here in this passage is doing something uh, in reference to God, and he's doing something in reference to man. And what he's doing, essentially, is the work of a mediator. He's, um, he's patching up the relationship between God and man. He's uh, bringing reconciliation uh, in terms of the fractured and broken relationship between God and man. And, and, and yet this mediatorial work that Jesus is described as doing here is that, and yet it is his life itself the giving of his life 
That is the very means of mediation. So he's the mediator, and yet he himself, his own life, is that which is mediatorial. In particular, it's, it's a mediation by substitution. Jesus, from one perspective, is substituting himself before the Father. And yet, from the other perspective, Jesus is substituting himself on behalf of his people. So, for instance, as we think about how he is substituting himself before the Father, look at verse 6 that we read this morning. The second part of verse 6. And the Lord, that is God, has laid upon him, that is Jesus, the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is doing a work that directly has bearing upon the righteousness of our holy God. That, that, that is, that, that punishment is occurring or has occurred upon Jesus that satisfies the justice of God. Or look at verse 4 here of our passage, the second part of verse 4. Yet he was esteemed stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. It was Jesus is doing something before the Father. What is he doing? Jesus is taking upon himself, the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is taking sin and bearing up under it. And, and, and what that looks like is that Jesus is the one who, before the Father, is being justly uh, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Our sin is put on Jesus, and he is bearing up under the curse, the condemnation, the penalty of our sin. Why? Because before God, uh, Jesus is satisfying divine justice. He is, in his own body, absorbing the holy wrath of a holy God. Behold the love of God. In other words, this is God Himself. This is, this is the beauty of our God being one God, three persons. This is God Himself who is the one offended, justly, rightly offended by our sin, uh, who nonetheless is taking out the, the punishment of that offense upon His own being. It'd be like someone offending you. Your first thought is, how do I get retribution against that person? They've done hurt my feelings, and so now they're going to have to pay for that. I mean, it's just how we naturally instinct. Like, you hurt me, I get to hurt you. And in fact, the law even puts a limit on that. Now, if they hurt you by uh, taking your eye, then you only can take one of their eyes. Because see, that without that limit, that's not how you'd want to do it. They took one of your eyes, how many eyes you want back? You want two. Three if they had them, but they don't got them. So, uh, so there's a limit on that. You know, so in other words, the point is, is that when someone offends you, when someone hurts you, 
When someone wrongs you, that person must pay. This is the beauty of the love of God in, in, in that we, we have offended a holy God. And yet God sends a member of his own being, his own son, to absorb that offense, to make that payment, to write that account. But I think I could press it even further here. We could talk about this um, atonement that Jesus has bore upon the cross in reference to our sins. We could, we could talk about it as I already have in a generalized way, but I would, I would suggest to you that in these three verses, it presses us to even think about our sin on, 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 in, on various, if you would, deeper levels, various aspects of our sin. And so we're going to look at three levels of our sinfulness that Jesus dealt with on the cross. And yet, as we look at these three levels of our sinfulness, the question that I want you to rejoice in in your heart is, how many of these levels did Jesus atone for in his work on the cross? And I want you to resoundingly praise God and say, all the levels. So verse Four, the first level, uh, it says there, surely he has borne our griefs and our sorrows. This is the first level of our sinfulness, our griefs and our sorrows. I would call this, if you would, the effects of our sin. Jesus substituted himself for the effects of our sin. He took, our passage tells us, our griefs and our sorrows. Now, here's what I think we should understand this to mean. What does it mean that he took our griefs and our sorrows? Well, well, I, I don't have to explain to you that you have grief and sorrow. I don't have to expel that out for you. Now, what I maybe do have to explain to you is, well, well, why do I have grief and sorrow? Where did that come from? Um, well, our, the condition of our sinfulness has produced a whole host of grief and sorrow in our lives. Do you understand that, that uh, prior to the fall in the garden, uh, we, we wouldn't have a category for something like grief or sorrow. Grief or sorrow, what's that, you know? Grief and sorrow is something that we now live with, something that we now experience because we live in a fallen world. And yet I would press that even in a, in a more specific way. Uh, there's a whole host of ways uh, that, our, that our emotions are, have gone sideways, that, that our hearts ache because not only because we live in a fallen world, not only because people have sinned against us causing grief and sorrow, but there's ways that you and I have hearts of grief and sorrow because it's been directly produced by our own sinful choices. Now, I, I, I got to make sure you didn't hear me wrong. I'm, not all of our griefs, not all of our sorrows come directly from our own sinful choices and commitments. And, and yet, as sure as I qualify that, I, I am suggesting, but you know what? And I don't know how to sort this out in terms of which and it is, but I just throw it open as a reality, and that is, but 
some of the grief that our hearts feel, some of the sorrow that our hearts experience comes because we put ourselves there. The sinful choices that we've made, the sinful commitments that we, that we maintain, that's just a part of the reality. Now, praise God, in His Son, in Christ Jesus, there is a day, it's described in Revelation 21 and 22, there is a day when there will no longer be these critters called grief or sorrow. But you know when that day will? That will also coincide with the day that sin will be completely eradicated. Until that time, grief and sorrow are a part of our experience because we live in a fallen world, because we live in relationship with fallen people, and because we are perfectly capable of bringing on grief and sorrow our own self because of our choices and our commitments. And yet what's amazing here is that um, Jesus from the previous week, verse 3, he, he is known as a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. In, in, in other words, do you see the substitution? Uh, he, he is a man of sorrows. He is well acquainted with grief. Why? Because he took on our grief and our sorrows. He wore them. He clothed himself with the effects of our sinful choices. He had no personal grief or sorrow uh, in and of himself because of his own choices. Uh, he, he was without sin, and, and yet he experienced life, and he felt what it felt like to experience the grief and sorrow that sin produces. He lived up under the curse, if you would, of our sin. And some of the curse of our sin is that it hijacks our emotions and it gives us profound heartache. He bore up under grief and sorrow, not his own, but ours. He substituted himself in that way. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He tasted the grief of our sin. He tasted the sorrow of our sin. He experienced that. He experienced that as we've already seen through just the notion that he himself was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The very hand of God was upon him, uh, causing him to feel the, the grief and the sorrow of our sinfulness. Uh, but there's another level that the next verse, verse 5, uh, I think, uh, expands upon. He not only took upon himself the um, effects of our sin, but he took upon himself the, if you would, and I like the alliteration of same letters, it gets me in trouble sometimes, but the exhibition of our sins, the expressions of our sins. In other words, the behaviors, the choices of our sin. Look at what it says in verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Those, those two words, iniquities and transgressions, describe not griefs and sorrows, the effects of our sins, but they describe the, the expressions, the, the outward exhibitions of our sins. 
sins. They describe the, our acts of disobedience, our actions of defiance. You understand that the ones who should have been pierced and crushed weren't because Jesus substituted himself in our place. It wasn't his transgressions that caused him to be pierced. It wasn't his iniquities that caused him to be crushed, but it's when he took yours and mine and bore up under them in his body on the tree that he was pierced and that he was crushed. And those two words are, are very profound words. They describe um, uh, just strong violence. Jesus was handled profoundly violently because of your sin. Jesus was brought to the point of destruction because of our sin. And he goes on. Uh, it, it, it's just a, in the second part of verse 5, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes or her, her, his wounds we are healed. It's even those two words, because he took upon himself the, uh, our sinful actions, um, he was chastised. Literally, the word is beaten. He was striped or wounded, hurt, if you would. He, he took upon himself our sinful choices, and he, and he, and he, and he tasted the consequences of those choices, being violently brought to the point of destruction, being deeply hurt and profoundly beaten. That's the substitutionary swap out that's in play here, that's going on here. And then the sixth verse, verse 6 there, gives it even another layer. So he, he took upon himself the effects of our sins, of the grief and the sorrow that comes from our sinfulness. He, he took upon himself the expressions of our sins, the, the very actions he paid for those in his body by taking the punishment of those. And then this next one is it maybe an even deeper level, which is what I would call the essence of sin, where he says in verse 6, and we all like sheep have gone astray. We, we have turned everyone to his own way. Jesus substituted himself for and, and felt the, the effects of our sins. He substituted himself and he felt the, uh, the, the, uh, the very actions or uh, expressions of our sin. And, and now he's, he substituted himself for the very essence of our sin. And the, the very essence of sin is uh, our proneness, our heart commitment to reject God, to turn against Him, to, to want to live independently of the Lord. You see, the essence of sin is not merely that we do bad things. The essence of sin is that we don't want God in our lives. I could do fine without Him, thank you very much. I don't need Him buttoning my life, telling me what to do. I'm my own man. I call my own shots. That's just the, that's just the essence 
of sin. It, it gives us that sort of mindset. We're like sheep that's gone astray. We have turned, each one of us, to our own way. And then he says, at the tail end of verse 6, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That was it. The imagery here is really out of Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. You remember the, 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 the second animal, the, the, the goat that, that was kept alive. The high priest would, would, after he had slaughtered the first animal and sprinkled the blood of that animal on the mercy seat in the holy of holy places, he'd come out and he'd lay his hands on that second goat. And in a sense, symbolically, what he was doing is he was saying, we are transferring all of our sins and iniquities and transgressions onto this goat. We are laying our hand upon this goat and symbolically transferring our sins. Uh, and, and, and then we're removing the goat from our midst, the notion of that, that, that our, the Lord has made provision to remove our sin from us. And, and yet how Jesus, I think, experiences that, how does Jesus experience the essence of our sin? Well, if the essence of our sin is that we want to live independently of God, I, I think when Jesus cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not a sweet spot to be abandoned by God. It just shows you the delusional of our mindset that, that, that we think that we could achieve happiness and peace and well-being apart from God being in our lives. That we, in fact, He's the one holding us back, oppressing us from, from those things. It just it shows you how sin makes us a bit crazy and insane. Uh, because what, what Jesus shows us at the cross is you want to know what it's like to be separated from the presence of God, to go on your own, to be independent. Look at the agony that you face on the cross. So Jesus substituted himself for the, the very essence of our sin as well. He, he felt what it was like to be completely separated, if you would, from the goodness of God at that moment. Well, I got to press this fast here. I told you, told you the first part would be would be longer, but I want to spend a few moments just pressing the issues a little bit further. Now we we've seen what Jesus has done, but 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 now I I just I want to I want to well I hope this is what I want to do. I want to prick our conscience. Because I want to pose the question, has what Jesus did on the cross as a substitute worked its way into your heart and soul? There's a stunning, I think, I think the way Isaiah writes it, he writes it in such a way that it's this glorious realization that it, 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 it has, the light bulb, if you would, has gone off. And in fact, the very first word in the very first line of our passage this morning, verse 4, um, where it says, surely. That's a, it's a bit of, a, of an exclamation. That's a bit of a statement. Without a doubt, 
In other words, Isaiah is not just giving us a disinterested recitation of Christ's good work. I mean, because on the one hand, I, I would venture to say that there's narrow one of us this morning that hadn't already heard something about what I'd just been talking about. Been there, done that. Same thing in church over and over again. Jesus died on the cross, you know. When are we going to get to the good stuff, you know? But the issue is, the reason we keep bringing it up is because you know this, but you've not applied this. No, Isaiah is helping us by reciting this as not a disinterested recitation of what Jesus did, but a personal realization of what Jesus has done. And a personalized application. And here's what I mean by that. And this is, this is where I want us to land this thing this morning. And that is I, I want us to walk away from here. And I don't want us to merely be able to recite, yeah, Christ bore griefs and sorrows. No. I want you and I to leave out of here this morning with a happy heart because we know that Christ bore our griefs, and that Christ bore our sorrows. Not, not a vague, third-person, nondescript kind of reality. I, 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 want, I want you and I to be able to recite this first person. I want you and I to, in fact, you could make it first-person plural like Isaiah does, but I think you could press it even further. I want you and I to walk out of here this morning with a heart that's satisfied because we know that Jesus bore my grief, that Jesus bore my sorrow. Not that he's out there doing that for some people, but I know he's done that for me. Not, not merely walk out of here knowing that, yeah, I get it. Christ was pierced for transgressions and, and that he was crushed for iniquities. No, 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 no. I, I, I want the Spirit of God to be real here this morning so that you and I would walk out of here with hearts that are lifted up in the reality that he was pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities. Not, not, not merely that Jesus did something back in the day that brought peace and healing, but that Jesus did something that has relevance for me in my life this morning, that he was chastised so that I could have peace. That, 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 that he was wounded so that I could be healed. Have you made that sort of, have you worked out that sort of application? Are these just vague, ephemeral concepts, or, or, or have they been personalized? Has he done this for you, for your grief, for your sorrow, for your transgressions, for your iniquities? Has he brought you peace? Has he provided you healing? Not merely to capture the sixth verse, not merely that iniquity was uh, laid upon Christ, but that my iniquity was laid upon Christ. You see, what, what Isaiah is, is trying to press into us is he's not just telling us some things that Jesus has done. No, he's, 
He's personally applying what Jesus has done. First of all, through the confession of his own sin. In other words, Isaiah is saying, that was my grief that he tasted. That was my sorrow that he felt. That was, that was my transgression. That was my iniquity. I now have a provision of peace. I now have a bounty of healing. My iniquity was laid upon him. And, and my, my point is, have you made that confession? Are, are you able to confess with integrity of heart that Jesus has taken my sin, my grief, my actions, the, the essence of my sin, has he taken that upon himself? Secondly, Isaiah is modeling for us uh, how he's made personal application through confession, not only of his sin, but through the sufficiency of Christ's provision. He bore he carried. He was pierced. He was crushed. His chastisement, his wounds was for me. He was stricken, smitten by God, afflicted because the just strickenness and smittenness and affliction that should have been coming our way was diverted, dumped on Jesus so that it would be abated from us. Oh, you see, I, I don't want you to just simply have a generic, generalized category of, yeah, Jesus did something about sin. No, I, I want you and I to leave out of here with the conviction that Jesus did something with my sin. I mean, how is it to quote from Psalm 103, verse 10, how is it when the psalmist says, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquity. On what basis does he not um, deal with us according to our sin? On what basis does he not repay us according to our iniquities? Why doesn't he come after you and I? because he has put forward his son in our place. He's substituted Jesus in our place. He does not deal with us according to our sins because he dealt with Jesus according to our sins. He does not repay us according to our sins because he repaid Jesus for our sins. Do you see the beauty of substitution? And yet I ask, as sure as I declare, has he? Have you personally applied the substitutionary work of Jesus and made it your own? Or is this just something that you're aware of? Something you file away and you'll get back to it later.
I, I bring this close with just a, a word of warning. In Romans chapter 2, as David, I mean, as Paul is, is recounting the gracious work of God, his kindness, he, he says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. In other words, this is not ever meant to just be a nicety that's filed in the back burner sometime. To know the work that Jesus has done, that he's taken upon himself our griefs and our sorrows, that he's taken upon himself our transgressions and our iniquities, that he's taken upon himself our penchant to want to do our own thing and go our own way, that he has bore up under all of the complete punishments of all of those facets of our sin and our sinfulness. Uh, it, 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 that's, that, that, that's meant to be known, not so that we can say, oh, that's nice. That's meant to be known so that we would turn around and run to Jesus. that we would, to use the word Paul used, that we would be led to repentance in light of this display of God's kindness and love. A, a repentance that would, that would consist of a change of direction, that would consist of a change of perspective, all because there's a deeper change of heart percolating, that we look at Jesus differently, that we look at ourselves differently, that we look at the world differently that it's no longer true of us there in verse 6 that we all like sheep have gone astray. No, we, we, we stop that notion of turning our own way and we turn to the Lord and we trust in this Jesus who has taken our punishment, who has substituted himself who has bore up under our griefs and our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, and our penchant to be like sheep and go our own way. No, we, we, we no longer are like sheep who have gone astray because we see Jesus clearly. And what we see is lovely and true and good and beautiful. And, as, and, now, and now what's indicative of us is the words of John 10, 27. The words of Jesus where he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. In other words, the application of what Christ has accomplished gets worked out when we cease to be sheep who go our own way, and we desire to be sheep who follow our master. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your word Thank you that you rescue sheep. You rescue us from our griefs and our sorrows, our iniquities, our transgressions. You, you rescue us from our penchant to go our own way. Father, may our hearts find great joy and delight in seeing what Jesus has done for us and that altering how we go forward. That changes how we think about you and ourselves and life, what's important, what's priority, what we're going to commit to.
and the choices that we make. Oh, Lord, may we just simply be sheep who follow you, for you are the good shepherd who has laid down his life for us. Amen. Let's stand and sing this song together.